and welcome to Simple Sarah's Horror Menagerie. I'm your host, Sarah Sin, tackling horror movies, peeling back the layers, and taking a deeper dive into them. Again, on the show, I don't just discuss my love of horror movies. I like to bring in the aspect and perspective of horror in history, how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am a psychology major, I like to bring this aspect and perspective in as well and see how the horror movie I'm focusing on reflects psychology and mental health in any way. Okay, so as you all know, new month means new theme. With January's theme being, we didn't start the fire, oh, but you did, where I will focus on, like, franchise starters, basically. Like, I've covered a few already, like I did Hellraiser, Son, Leprechaun, but there's many I haven't covered yet, so this is going to be the whole focus for this month, is just focusing on franchise starters, like the movie that started it all. Um, so, I'm going to apologize right now for my voice, I have been sick for a while, um, I got COVID again and was sick for about five days and I'm still kind of getting over it. I'm no longer positive, but I'm still like recovering from it. So like my nose is stuffed up. I don't really sound the same, but I will apologize for my voice. It's very raspy today. So I'm going to move on to the first movie for the theme of We Didn't Start the Fire. Oh, but you did with 1980s Friday the 13th, directed by Sean S. Cunningham. Starring Betsy Palmer as Pamela, Mrs. Voorhees, Adrian King as Alice, Janine Taylor as Marcy, Robbie Morgan as Annie, Kevin Bacon as Jack, Harry Crosby as Bill, Laurie Bartram as Brenda, Mark Nelson as Ned, and Peter uh, Brower as Steve. So for horror and history, I definitely think this is a movie that's, you know, instilling those fears uh, to society. Like, the idea of anyone who dares to have fun, party, or have premarital sex, you know, straying away from traditional American values. You know, if you do these bad things, bad things will happen to you. Like, this was a fear, you know, the church, the government was trying to instill in society was like, you do these bad things and bad things are going to happen to you and you get what you deserve. So I think this movie is definitely focusing, or sorry, reflecting on that. I think it also, sadly... Um, reflects on how single mothers and special needs children were viewed back then. You know, the special, uh, the sorry, the Disabilities Act didn't even go into place until the 1990, until 1990. And this is a movie that has a single mother who loses a special needs child. And they're definitely seen, unfortunately seen as less than. So I think this movie is definitely reflecting on that idea, unfortunately and sadly. And I think it's also reflecting on, like, the past coming back to haunt you, like a town's dirty secret they're trying to bury. Um, You know, you have to pay for the sins of your past, and otherwise it's going to come to bite you in the ass. Psychology and mental health, we got guilt, grief, revenge, I would say both the adolescent stage of life and emerging adolescent stage of life. You got disassociative identity disorder, um, color symbolism, mostly red. You'll see red splash throughout the entire movie. If you go back and watch it, there's like something red in every scene. Sins of the past and like seeking revenge. So what is this movie about? When Camp Crystal Lake tries to reopen after 20 plus years from a grim past, a boy drowned in 1957 and the following year, two counselors were murdered. Things look hopeful as the teen counselors start to arrive to help get everything ready. But things aren't great as the counselors are stalked and killed off one by one by an unknown assailant. Someone or something lurks in the forest surrounding the lake, picking the teens off one by one until one person is left who must come face to face with this mysterious killer. Moving on to the subgenre, 
So there's really not, in my opinion, not really many subgenres to really put this movie into. Like, this movie is kind of like the template and the formula for the slasher flick subgenre. It's definitely one of the original ones that kind of helped start, like, the slasher flick boom of the 80s. The difference in this movie is that we don't have a mass killer. You know, Jason comes in the sequels. But you still have, like, the POV sequences, a killer stalking teenagers, killing them off one by one. So I definitely still consider this a slasher flick. So I will go over the definition of slasher flick. Slasher flick. This subgenre is one of the most popular of the horror genre that exploded in the 80s. The most iconic horror villains, Freddy, Michael, Jason, all come from this subgenre. This subgenre usually involves a killer or killers who tend to wear a mask, stalk and kill people, typically teenagers, because they were partying, drinking, doing drugs, and having premarital sex. Many killers from this subgenre are seeking revenge against those who have done them wrong or have hurt them in any way. In most of these movies, there is a final girl who must go up against the killer for the final showdown. In this subgenre, the body count is usually high, and the deaths tend to be inventive, bloody, over-the-top, and they don't skimp on the gore. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is, like, the teens um, within this movie. You know, the main, really, they're the main characters of this movie. And we really have seven in total. We have Alice, Bill, Jack, Marcy, Brenda, Ned, and Steve, who's the owner of the camp. We do have an eighth person, Annie, but she's kind of killed before she even makes it to the camp. You know, Annie is the first one we see. Um, but the others are the ones who make it to the camp, and we spend more time getting to know the other characters over Annie. So this movie, I will say, is a little bit of a slow burn, um, just enough, in my opinion, um, to actually get you to care about these people before they start getting picked off one by one. Like, some of the things I read was like, oh, you don't even care about these characters. And I was like, you know what? This movie actually does spend a little time letting you get to know the characters, not super in-depth. But it's like they just give you a taste of who they are just enough for you to care about them. So when they start to die, you're like, oh, man, like now this person can't go to art school or this person can't play the guitar anymore. So um, let me go over some scenes um, that kind of, you know, with each character. And I'll even go over one about Annie and, you know, and then I'll kind of talk about the teens, maybe what they represent and just go a little more in depth about them. So we first meet Annie, like she's the one that the movie op kind of opens up with after we see like, you know, the counselor's getting killed in 58 and she's kind of heading into this town and then she walks into this diner because she's trying to find a ride to Camp Crystal Lake. Annie, excuse me, how far is Camp Crystal Lake from here? Trudy, what is it, Enos? About 20 miles? Enos, about that. Woman, Camp Blood, they're opening that place again? Enos. Lots of luck. Annie, can I get a bus or something? Woman, not likely. Trudy, you going out to the crossroads, Enos? What about a lift? That would be halfway. Enos, no sweat, Trudy. Okay, kid, let's move it. Annie, the name's Annie. Enos, all right, Annie, let's go. So we do see here that the townsfolk aren't very happy about Camp Crystal Lake opening up again. They call it Camp Blood. But the one thing I do like is that Annie just comes off very sweet, kind of naive, and very innocent. So later, um, as Alice is kind of trying to fix up the cabins, Steve, again, he's the owner of the camp, comes over and, like, finds her sketchbook. Steve, you draw very well. Alice, thanks. I wish I had more time to do it. Steve, when did you do this? 
Alice. Last night. Steve. Do I really look like that? Alice. You did last night. Steve. You're very talented. And you're very pretty. This really isn't your cup of tea, is it? Any particular reason? Alice. It's just a problem I have. It's nothing personal. Steve. You want to leave? Alice. I don't know. I may have to go back to California to straighten something out. Steve. Come on. Give me another chance. Stay a week. Help get the place ready. By Friday, if you're not happy, I'll put you on the bus myself. Alice. All right. Friday. I'll give it a week. Steve. Thanks, Alice. So it's definitely obvious here that Steve's very interested in Alice, but she's not so sure. Like, it feels almost like Steve has a, you know, a life and a career. Like he's taking over the ownership of this camp because his parents own the camp. But Alice is young and still kind of like wants to venture out and figure out what she wants to do. So uh, later on, some of the teens, they're kind of like out by the lake and they're just enjoying the sun and swimming because Steve has left to go to town. Um, and he was like, keep working. And they were all like, yeah, we're going to take a break and go swim in the lake. Marcy, what's that vitamin C stuff do for you anyway? Brenda, vitamin C is supposed to neutralize the nutrients or something. Marcy, what's the matter? Do you see something? Brenda, no, no, nothing. So later on, um, Ned, he's kind of our goofball, funny guy. He's goofing off. And he's, like, hanging out in his underwear and, like, wearing a feathered headdress. And then, like, the cop shows up to ask the kids questions. Brenda. Officer. Officer. Really, nothing's going on here. We're just trying to get the place in shape. Cop. In shape for what? Bill. Officer, is there anything we can do to help? Marcy. We'd be glad to help out. Cop. I'm looking for somebody. Ned. And who's that? Cop. A guy named Ralph. The town crazy. Ned. Well, there's no crazy people around here. Cop. I told you to sit on it, Tonto. I got word that Ralph was peddling out this way, spouting his gospel. Bill. We haven't seen anybody here, officer. Marcy. Just us. Brenda. This guy, Ralph, is he dangerous? Cop. Every time that loony gets drunk, he gets his calling. I end up spending the morning in court, and he gets a week in jail. So this kind of, so this is the scene that kind of, one of the scenes, because Ned is very goofy, plays pranks, and like I said, he's kind of like the fool, the goofball, the funny guy in the movie. But it shows, like, Ned is, can't take anything seriously while the other teens are trying to be responsible. So Marcy and Jack are a couple. Like, they're not just there and met and hooking up. Um, they come together as a couple, and they're hanging out by the lake. Marcy, come on. Jack, coming, I'm coming. Oh, wind's come up. Shifted a good 180 degrees. Marcy, makes me want to hold on to you. What about Ned? Jack, I don't love Ned. Marcy, he keeps acting like such a jerk. Jack, Nettie! Marcy, stop. Don't call him. Jack, I thought you wanted to give him one of your motherly lectures. Look, Ned's going to do whatever Nettie wants to do, you know? It's going to storm. Can tear down the valley like a son of a gun. Marcy, 
I've been afraid of storms ever since I was a little kid. Jack. No, really? Marcy. Yeah, I've had this dream about five or six times where I'm in a thunderstorm, and it's raining really hard. It sounds like pebbles when it hits the ground. I can hear it. I try to block out the sound with my hands, only it doesn't work. It just keeps getting louder and louder, and then the rain turns to blood, and the blood washes away in little rivers. And then the sound stops. Jack. It's just a dream. Marcy. Yeah, I know. I call it my shower dream. Jack. Hey, hey, this is no dream. Come on, we're going to get soaked. So later on, um, like Alice, Bill, and Brenda are in like the main cabin, like they call it like the main hall. And like Bill's strumming on his guitar. They're all hanging out, kind of waiting to hear from Ned, Marcy, and Jack. Like they're still waiting for Steve to get back. He hasn't arrived back yet. And they're waiting for the rest of the crew to kind of show up. Brenda, hey, I know what we can do. We're going to play Monopoly. Alice, I hate Monopoly. Brenda, not the way I play it, you don't. Bill, like what? Brenda, we're going to play Strip Monopoly. I'll be the shoe. Alice, you have got to be kidding. Bill, what if Steve walks in? Brenda, we'll give him a handicap. He can keep his boots on. Everything else goes. It's easy. Instead of paying rent, you pay clothes. Bill can be the banker. Unless, of course, he's chicken. Bill, well, heaven help you if you land on one of my hotels. Brenda, why don't you see if Marcy left any of that grass? Bill, what happened to my 500s? Brenda, they're right there. Where's my shoe? So, like I said, it's like as soon as you get to know these teens, they kind of start to die off. And in my opinion, they really don't fit the mold, to be honest. Like, if you think about, like, the formula and the template, like, think of the movie Cabin, uh, Cabin in the Woods. So, in Cabin in the Woods, they set up this, like, formula template where they say, like, there's usually a jock, the fool, the funny guy, the smart one, kind of like the dumb, slutty blonde, and then there's the virgin. But we don't really have any of those. Like, I would definitely say Ned is the fool. Like, he's the funny guy, the one playing pranks. He can't really take anything seriously. You know, the smart one, I would say, is Brenda, because she does seem, you know, she's the one who talks about, like, the vitamin C, and when you're listening to her throughout the movie, like, she's the one who comes off as, like, the smart girl, and then the virgin would be Alice, like, our final girl, but to me, in actuality, like, we don't have the jock or slut or, you know, dumb blonde, you know, we don't really have that template and formula, you know, we have Ned, who's the jokester, again, he likes to play pranks, make people laugh, Brenda's the smart one, um, but Bill, like, he's very responsible, like, he comes off more as, like, the big brother type, you know, and all we see is that he's very musical, he's the one who's, like, playing the guitar, like I said, he's a lot like Brenda, like, they're definitely the more responsible ones who come off as, like, the big brother and the big sister kind of, um, thing. Alice is artistic, you know, we see this with her sketchbook, and Steve comments on her talent, so Alice, even though she's our final girl slash virgin, She's the, she's artistic. She likes art. Like, that's what she wants to do. Ned likes to play pranks. You know, Bill likes to play the guitar. You know, and Jack and Marcy, they're a couple there. Like I said, like, there's not, they don't come there and just start hooking up. Like, they come together as a couple. And Jack is even smart. Like, he's the one who knows about the weather. And he's the one commenting on the weather. It kind of implies that, like, he's an outdoor person. Like, 
I wouldn't say a jock. Like he doesn't come off as the guy who's playing football and, you know, baseball and soccer. He's seems like guy. Sorry, he seems like the guy who's going to go canoeing in a river, and hiking up, you know, a mountain. Like he's very outdoorsy. And Marcy comes off as very caring and, you know, wants to look out for everyone. Cause he even says like, oh, you're going to give him one of your motherly lectures. So she's like a motherly type. Like she cares about everyone and wants to look out for everyone. So like I said, what I find interesting is that this movie kind of helped set the formula or like set the template and make the formula for slashers to come after it. But it actually doesn't follow that formula. Like, there aren't a bunch of horny teens drinking, partying, and having sex in this movie. Like, they're literally there to just help set up the camp. Like, they're there to get it ready because it's opening in two weeks. Like, the only ones who have sex are, like I said, are Jack and Marcy. But they're a couple. Like I said, they didn't show up there, look at each other, wink at each other, and go to the woods to bang. Like, they came together because they're a couple, and they wanted to do this camp together. And they're the only ones who have sex. You know, um, and the only time anyone takes any clothes off, really, besides Jack and Marcy, who are, you know, having sex, is during Monopoly. But it's a very innocent game of Monopoly. Like, they're playing strip Monopoly. And I think it's just Bill and Brenda end up taking their tops off, but no one shows any boobs. You know, and Alice keeps her clothes on. Like, they're literally just relaxing after a days of work of getting everything ready they're having a couple of beers but they're not drinking to like get drunk and party they're just drinking to relax after a hard day's work play monopoly um you know maybe smoke a little grass smoke a little pop but who didn't back then like come on like it's not like they're out there you know snorting cocaine or something you know it's one of those things where like these people were literally at the wrong place at the wrong time they weren't being punished for their, quote, sins, like it's more established in later movies or like the slashers to come after this, where, you know, these kids were getting killed off because they were having sex, because they were partying, because they were doing drugs, you know, they were being morally wrong, you know, these people, like I said, weren't being punished for these acts of, you know, these acts of sins, they're being punished for the sins of the past, if that makes sense. So like I said, just as you get to know these teens, like you learn that they're just typical teens. They're just typical teenagers who are having a summer job. They're going to be counselors. One likes to play the guitar. One's artistic. One likes to joke. You know, one's outdoorsy. One's very smart. One's very motherly. Like they all are just typical teens, you know, not sex starved, horned dogs, partying and being irresponsible like the later movies, like the sequels. They're just typical, innocent teenagers who get killed off because of the sins of the past of Camp Crystal Lake. So I hope that all makes sense. Like I said, you get to know these characters just enough to care about them before they start getting killed off. And you realize that even though this movie kind of set the template, you know, built the formula for the slashers to come, it doesn't even follow that formula because you don't have the quote typical stereotype characters in this movie you just have a bunch of teens who are here to have a job and you know they're not partying they're not horn dogs they're not sex starved you know they're not being irresponsible in any way they were just in the wrong place at a wrong time and they're not, again like I said they're not being punished for their sins 
they're being punished for the sins of the past, Camp Crystal Lake's past. So again, I hope that all makes sense. So next, I'd like to talk about Mrs. Voorhees, Pamela Voorhees, a grieving mother who just happens to be our, you know, the antagonist of this movie. And again, there's a lot going on with her to the point where, like, yeah, you know, she's definitely crazy, but you also feel sorrow for her. Like, you kind of feel bad for her. So again, let me go over a few scenes and then, you know, dive deeper into Pamela Voorhees. So when we meet Annie, again, at the beginning, she's at the diner and she's getting the ride from Enos. He kind of gives a little bit of backstory about Camp Crystal Lake. Enos, did he tell you anything? Annie, who? Enos, your boss, Steve Christie. Annie, oh, I'll be cooking for 50 kids and 10 staff. Campers will mostly be like inner city children. Enos, no, I mean about what happened. Annie, no. Come on, there's something you're not telling me. Enos, quit. Quit now. Annie, quit? Why would I want to quit? Enos, Camp Crystal Lake is jinxed. Annie, oh, terrific. Not you, too. You sound like your crazy friend back there, Ralph. Enos, yeah, well, maybe. Did Christy tell you about the two kids murdered in 58, huh? Boy drowning in 57? A bunch of fires? Nobody knows who did any of them. In 1962, they were going to open up. The water was bad. Christy will wind up just like his folks, crazy and broke. He's been up there a year, fixing up that place. He must have dropped 25000 And for what? Ask anybody. Quit. Annie, I can't. So we don't even meet Pamela until, like, the very last, like, she's in the third act. She's, like, in the last 20 minutes of the movie. Um, I don't even think she's mentioned at all, and we just meet her. You know, after Alice starts finding her friends dead, she runs outside thinking that the Jeep she sees pulling up is Steve's Jeep, but it ends up being Pamela. Alice, who are you? Pamela, well, I'm, I'm Mrs. Voorhees, an old friend of the Christie's. Alice, oh, thank you. I'm so glad. And she hugs Pamela and starts to cry. Pamela, no, no, there, there. Now look, I can't help you if you don't calm down. Alice. But she's dead, and he's dead, and, oh my God, poor Bill, oh God. Pamela, all right, all right, all right. Come on, dear, then show me. Alice, no, no. Pamela, no, but it's all right. I'll take care of you. I used to work for the Christies. Alice, oh God, what's going on here? Please help me get out of here. Pamela, it's just this place and the storm. That's why you're upset. Alice, no, no, they're all dead. They're all dead. Pamela, oh, all right, all right, I'll go look. Alice, no, no, please, don't leave me. They'll kill you too. Pamela, I'm not afraid. So Pamela does go inside and she sees, um, uh, sorry, she sees Brenda's dead body. Pamela, oh, what monster could have done this? Alice, Bill's out there. Pamela, oh God, this place. Steve should have never opened this place again. There's been too much trouble here. Did you know that a young boy drowned? His name was Jason. I was working the day that it happened, preparing meals. Here. I was the cook. Jason should have been watched every minute. He was... He wasn't a very good swimmer. 
We can go now, dear. Alice, I think we should wait for Mr. Christie. Pamela, that's not necessary. Alice, I, I don't understand. And then Pamela kind of starts to remember the drowning and hears Jason's voice calling out, like, help me, help me, mommy. Pamela, I am Jason. I am. You see, Jason was my son, and today is his birthday. Alice, where's Mr. Christie? Pamela, oh, I couldn't let them open this place again, could I? Not after what happened. Oh, my sweet, innocent Jason, my only child, Jason, you let him drown. You never paid any attention. Look what you did to him. Look what you did to him. So throughout, like, the whole ending where, like, Pamela's chasing Alice and they're fighting and then Pamela's, like, pursuit to kill Alice, she ends up talking to herself a lot in Jason, like, a child's voice, Jason's voice. You know, um, there's one part where she, it's, like, kill her, mommy. Kill her. Don't let her get away, mommy. Don't let her live. Pamela, I won't, Jason. I won't. And then later on, she finds Alice and she goes, come, dear. It'll be easier for you than it was for Jason. And then in Jason's voice, kill her, mommy. Kill her. Kill her. And then later when she's running in the woods, um, Alice is running in the woods, running away from Pamela. And Pamela just kind of stops and just speaks completely in Jason's voice. Kill her, mommy. Kill her. She can't hide. No place to hide. Get her, mommy. Get her. Kill 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 her. So what we find out is that Pam, uh, sorry, Pamela worked at the camp and her son Jason went there. You know, she was a single mom. This is her only child. Um, and I feel like, you know, she brought, you know, she's probably working there so Jason can go there for free and just have a very fun summer experience. But instead of doing their job, the counselors, instead of watching Jason, they snuck off to have sex and Jason drowned and Pamela lost her only child. You know, in the movie, you see that, you know, he is special needs. And sometimes a lot of kids with special needs, they need a lot of one-on-one -on -one care, which is why I think Pamela does state, like, Jason should have been watched every minute. You know, so Jason, so here we have a, Jason, a child with special needs, left unattended because the counselors wanted to have sex and he drowned. He died. You know, and this left Pamela devastated. Pamela's a grieving mother. Like, I just, I couldn't imagine putting my trust in people to look after my child, trusting that, trusting my child's life in their hands to have them not care enough to keep an eye on them and finding out my child died due to their negligence. I can't even imagine what Pamela Voorhees felt when this happened to her. You know, Pamela's grieving the loss of her child and probably feels guilty about it as well. Many times with the loss of a child, people feel guilty, thinking like, is there something I could have done? What could have I done? If I had done, you know, this, would they still be here? And it's implied, so not only is she, sorry, so not only is she feeling guilt and grieving over the loss of her son, it's very much implied that not much was done about Jason's death. It was basically a slap on the wrist for the counselors and the owners, the Christies, because they were open the following year. So Pamela loses her son due to negligence. The Christies and the counselors involved, so the counselors who were supposed to be watching Jason and the owners of the camp basically get a slap on the wrist and everyone just moves on with their lies as if nothing happened. 
This makes Pamela snap. I feel like this would make any mother snap. Pamela loses her only child, and people could care less. The town could care less. Why? Because she was a single mother? Because her son was special needs? You know, where they were seen as, quote, less than? Remember, this is like the early 80s, and, you know, the drowning took place in the 50s. You know, again, like I said in the beginning, you know, the people of, you know, with Disabilities Act didn't even come into effect until 1990. So, you know, single mothers and special needs children were seen as, quote, burdens on the world, you know, which is so sad to think about, especially I'm a single mother. You know, I would hate to be looked at as less than a burden and special needs children. They're special. They're, they're wonderful. They are just children. And it's sad to think about that, you know, back then they were seen, like I said, as less than. So you have a single mother with a special needs child who is looked at as nothing, you know, and I'm, I'm so glad there's more laws in place protecting, you know, special needs. You know, so Pamela, sorry, I'm I'm talking a lot and I'm and I I'm rambling on. I'm not trying to. So Pamela snaps, and the following year, like so the the year after her son's death, she murders two counselors who have snuck off to have sex. After that, the camp shuts down, and you know she tries to do everything she can to kind of keep that place from opening up, to the point of murdering the new counselors that show up because the camp is trying to open back up. Does it make it right? No. Like, those teens were innocent. They did nothing wrong. They were at the wrong place at the wrong time. But in Pamela's mind, she needs to protect children. She doesn't want anyone to ever go through what she went through. She doesn't want anyone to feel what she felt from losing a child. In her mind, she's protecting another mother from losing their child. So when you hear her in Jason's voice, it's kind of like a reverse psycho scenario like in psycho norman bates takes on the personality of his mother after he kills her pamela takes on the personality of her son after his death you know she talks like a little boy and will have conversations with herself so she does suffer from disassociative identity disorder just like norman bates so in short disassociative identity disorder is when a person has two or more distinct personalities living in one body so pamela does suffer from this disorder so after losing her child, the fact that she's grieving and feels guilty, again, the Christies and those counselors get a slap on the wrist and the, you know, and everything gets brushed under the rug and everyone just moves on as if nothing happens because again, in their eyes, it was just a single mom with special needs, you know, with a special needs child, you know, again, you know, they're less than, you know, why should we care? Let's brush this under the rug and just move on with our lives. She snaps and develops a second personality, which is Jason, and starts to murder people to protect mothers from losing a child due to the negligence of these camp counselors and keeping them from the guilt and grief, you know, that she felt and trying to help them from ever going through what she went through. So, like, I don't believe that this is revenge or seeking vengeance on Pamela's part. I believe the Jason personality wants revenge, while the Pamela personality wants to protect that motherly instinct. So I hope that all makes sense. Like, I'm sorry I went rambling on, but basically we have Pamela, who's a grieving mother. She feels guilty over it. 
she's working at this camp with her special needs child and she's trying to give him this wonderful summer experience. You know, he needs more one-on-one care. He should be watched every minute, but the counselors, instead of doing that and watching this little boy, they go off to have sex and due to their negligence, he died. He drowned. Pamela loses her only child. And on top of that, since this is, remember the time, of when this movie came out, single mothers and special needs children were basically looked at as a burden on society and they were less than, you know, again, so sad to think about how these people were treated back then is just terrible. And like I said, it it is hard sometimes to watch these movies and see how people were treated and it's just, it's awful. So again, you have a single mother and special needs child, this incident gets brushed under the rug because, you know, what do we care about those people? So sad. You know, so slap on the wrist to the Christie's and the counselors, they open up the following year and she kills two counselors. She snaps. She takes on this personality of Jason and Jason's personality wants revenge, but the Pamela personality wants to protect. She doesn't want any mother to ever go through what she went through. She doesn't want any mother to ever feel what she felt, the guilt and grief of losing a child. So in her mind, she is protecting another mother from losing a child due to the negligence of the Christie's. And their camp, the counselors they hire, you know, at Camp Crystal Lake. So again, I hope that all makes sense. So I'm going to move on to my reviews. Horrornews.net says, The film itself isn't that bad if you ignore everything that comes after it and view it as a standalone film. The action and suspense is kept intense, thanks in part to the pacing and editing of the film, which is handled with skill. They go on to say, By itself, and as a part of the series, The first entry into the Friday the 13th series is pretty damn good. The scares are genuine, and the film is tight, and I recommend it as an essential viewing for any horror fan. Horror Movie Talk says, This movie is so quaint and tame by today's standards that I really would recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it, so long as they are interested in horror. This is a great entry to bring a new horror head into the genre because it gives the viewers such a strong idea of where all the tropes come from. So, overall... This movie is a bloody and creepy slasher flick that sets up the formula for the slashers to come, yet doesn't follow the rules itself. This movie, for its time, had incredibly graphic, bloody, and gory kills, showing off the skills of the amazing special effects artist Tom Savini. Although this movie is more of a slow burn, it still keeps you on your toes and guessing until the killer reveal. So this actually was the first horror movie I ever saw when I was five years old. I remember sitting in the living room with my older siblings and their friends watching this movie with a huge smile on my face as my sister is trying to cover my eyes during the nude slash sex scenes. (laughs) So this movie holds a very special place in my heart because it was the first horror movie I ever saw. And I actually remember my mother telling me this movie one time as a bedtime story. So if you haven't seen this movie, you need to. It's part of horror history, and in my opinion, it really is the movie that ignited the slasher craze of the 80s. Like I said, this movie will always hold a special place in my heart, so please watch it if you haven't yet. It may be tame by today's standards, but it's still a fun and entertaining romp that sets the template for the slasher flick subgenre. So, I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you again for joining me here on Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. Again, I'm your host, Sarah Sin. Thank you for sticking around as I discuss horror history, psychology, and mental health within horror movies. Hope you enjoyed the show. Again, thank you for listening. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a horror movie out there for everyone to enjoy. So thank you. <laughs>